If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ruth. We are beginning this morning a new series, and over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of work our way in larger chunks, not this morning, but uh, in, in weeks to come, larger sections of uh, chapters of the book of Ruth. And then when we're finished with the book of Ruth, we are going to go to the book of Esther. Uh, those two books pair really well. And if you're looking for the book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges. And the author, just, just by way of giving you a little bit of background, the author of Ruth is, is unknown, uh, but the date at which it was written um, is obviously different than the time in which this story takes place, but the date in which it was written is believed to be either during the time of King David uh, or uh, right after the time of King David, and we know this from the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. And, and one, of the, one of the many things that I like about the book of Ruth, and even more so the book of Esther, as we'll see, is, is that it feels, it feels similar to me to our day in and day out experience, to, to at least some degree. There, there's no sensationalism in these books, really. There's no great scene. There's no scene like Elijah calling down fire from heaven, um, signifying that the Lord was uh, pleased with Elijah's sacrifice, right? Or to demonstrate the acceptability of Elijah's sacrifice to the the, the Baal worshipers. There's no parting of the Red Sea in this book. There's no manna raining from heaven, right? Most of the Christian life is not these things. And we should know that experientially speaking, that the Christian life, most of the Christian life is not of these, not these things. And in fact, the things that we read, and sometimes as we read the Old Testament, even the New Testament, we can begin to read stories like those that I just described, and, and we can uh, begin to think that that should be the norm for the Christian life, when in fact it was rare even during these times. It was out of the norm during these times. But both of these books, Ruth and Esther, they're, they're ordinary and, and they're beautifully written books. And, and both of them, both of these books are historic, which we don't want to forget as we, as we read this together. Now, there, there are things that certainly don't translate because of the time in which these people live. But if you can enter into this story... Okay, if, you can, if you can honestly enter into this story, you will see how, how earthy decisions, how earthy decisions that, that we all make, how they have eternal significance. Right? They're not insignificant. And, and, and you'll see, if you can enter into this story and see the intersection of your own story with it, you'll see God's providential hand. Right? You'll see that guiding, sovereign, good, holy, wise, providential hand in the lives of the characters of here in the book of Ruth and again later in, in Esther. And, and, and you see that providential hand that we all tend to miss in our day in and day out, right? things that we don't tend to notice. And, and here in the book of Ruth, again, we, we see a true story. We, we see a beautifully told story that, that's preaching something richer and grander 
than what we may see initially. One commentator says this about this story, and I, lo- I love this summary kind of of the, the deeper, grander, richer truth of what we're seeing here in the book of Ruth. He says this, he says, the book of Ruth is a story that shines with the deeper beauty of the gospel. It's indeed a gem, but a gem in the sense of a gathered and concentrated power, a bright clarity beneath a somewhat deceptive setting of lyric grace and simplicity. In other words, there's more here, there's more in the book of Ruth than meets the eye, right? And isn't that the case with our lives as well? Now, the author of this book is repetitious in certain words, and, and we'll notice that throughout, throughout the weeks that we're here. But even in our text this morning, we're going to see the phrase, and I want us to hold uh, the, these two places in our heads. We see the phrase Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, we're going to see that repeated in the first five verses here. And we see the word Moab. Okay, so Bethlehem in Judah mentioned a couple of times, and then we see Moab mentioned. And, and what, what we need to know is that everything, absolutely everything in this book hinges on these two places. Okay, everything hinges on these two places. And in, in fact, you'll see in our lives that absolutely everything hinges on these two places. While they're a- actual locations... They have eternal significance, and we're going to begin to see why that is this morning, and, and Lord willing, it'll become clearer and clearer as we progress through the weeks together. So this morning, we're going to look at the first five verses because they help to give us context, and they help to, to really set the, the stage, if you will, for what we need to see, what we need to, to spiritually see. And in the following weeks, I'm going to preach, Lord willing, whole chapters for the most part, because that's what the, the text demands. But we're going to look at, at the first five verses this morning in an effort really to, to enter in, to, to explore, and to just feel this rich story. And hopefully we'll see again how our story intersects with this story, but more importantly, how the story of redemption intersects with this story. And so look with me. At Ruth chapter 1, I'm going to read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names uh, names of his two sons were Mahalan and Kilian. They were Ephrates from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives, the, 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 the sons took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, right? not to be confused with Oprah, it's an important distinction, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Verse 5, both Mahalan and, and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to work through these five verses together this morning. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you that we can come to it. Thank you that we can read it, God. And Lord, help us not to forget, Lord, that this, 
This is a story that did in fact happen, God, and help us to enter into that story, Lord, and help us also to pay attention to the spiritual significance, Lord, the very thing that we need eyes of faith to see, and we ask that your Spirit would apply your Word to our lives, that we may be near you. In Jesus' name, amen. As as we're trying to grasp the the context of this story, the, the very first verse is significant for us. Uh, this historical event, it happened during the time that the judges ruled. Uh, this is before kings. Right? This is before David, right? a man after God's own heart. And while the, the book of Ruth is beautifully written, and, and, and it's a, a gracefully um, articulated story, and it's gentle even in its unfolding the context in which this family lived, what was happening behind the scenes there, it was brutal. It was brutal. We see in the very background the wrath and the judgments of God. If, If you're familiar with the book of Judges at all, which is the book right before the book of Ruth here, if you're familiar with that book, if you have read that book at all, you, you're, you've read of, of the violence and the suffering and the devastation that is going on in the promised land at that time. And if any verse summarized the time of the Judges, it's Judges chapter 21, verse 25, which is the very last verse that you read before you get to Ruth chapter 1. And it says this, and you probably heard it before. Very sad passage of Scripture. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a a summary statement as to the the condition of the promised land during the time of the judges. This is the contextual history of the book of Ruth. And what's implied here, just in that passage I just read, that judges passage, what's implied here and what we should see is that no one agreed on what was right. No one agreed on that. Right? Everyone was debating that. Yeah. And, the, and what we need to remember, even though that was the state of things, right, is, is that what is right is determined by God. Right? It's, pater- it's determined by God. And, and here, one of the reasons in which they couldn't to, uh, come, come to an agreement on what was right, the reason why they, everyone did what was right in their own eyes is because they were rejecting the very one who's sta- who determines what's right and what's wrong. They rejected God as king. They rejected God as the king of kings. And if you read the book of Judges, you see the outworking of a culture in which every individual lives, quote, their truth. Right? That's what you see there in the book of Judges. And you hear that a lot in our society today, right? That's your truth, but my truth is, right? Everybody seems to have and everybody seems to live their truth. And the problem with that, the problem with that is that this is God's world. This is God's world, regardless of whether you acknowledge him as king or not. This is his world, and he determines, he alone determines what is true, because he is truth. He's truth. 
Right? Man has no authority inherent in himself to determine right from wrong, right? Truth from lies. That's determined by God, and that determination is fixed eternally so, and, and all of us are to submit to it. But let me just give you a sampling of how things got to, got to this point. Again, for contextual purposes for this book, turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And as you do, let me, let me even give you a little bit of context here. And when we get to Judges, and just as you're turning there, when we get to Judges, we see that Joshua, who took over for Moses, who, who led the Israelites into the promised land, we see that Joshua, that guy, he's dead. Okay, in the book of Judges, it opens with battles. It opens with fierce battles. It opens with conquests that are directed by God. Right? The conquests are directed by God. God has instructed the Israelites to be led by Judah and to conquer over every enemy, to literally take the promised land uh, from its pagan and dangerous res- residence. Right? God said that his people are the rightful possessors of it. And he promised them victory over their enemies as they conquered before the face of God as unto the Lord. But instead of doing that, Israel failed to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And you see that cycle in the Old Testament, God's people going to war when they shouldn't go to war and God's people not going to war when they should go to war, right? You kind of see that cycle, And this failure, this disobedience is really bad. It's really bad for the people of Israel. They failed to conquer all the people in the land, and that had this large ripple effect, if you will, beyond what man could imagine. But let's pick up with, again, chapter 2. I want to look at the the second part of verse 1 and verse 3, and then we're going to drop down a little bit. But it's here that the Lord says this. It says, I brought you up from Egypt, okay, speaking of the Israelites, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? And so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be, and this is that ripple effect, this consequence that they didn't see coming, right? They shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall become a snare to you. And then if you drop down to verse 10, and then we go to verse 16, you see this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, And there arose another generation after them, and listen at the tragedy here, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out 
whenever the Israelites marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then the last verse I want to show you here is verse 16, because again, this sets us, propels us into Ruth. Then the Lord raised up judges who would save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Right, so so th- what we need to see here is that this is the day that the judges ruled. This is what, this is what that verse is getting at, right? And we, we don't want to just gloss by that, but that's what Ruth opens up here. The book of Ruth opens up with. That's the historical context. That's the ugly cultural background of what's going on in this book. And the brutality of this time is a direct result of people living and making decisions thinking that they know better than God, right? That's the result of this life. It begins with the death of Joshua, a failure to obey God and how Israel was to inhabit the promised land. It pushes forward with fathers and mothers not passing down the old stories to their children of how God rescued them out of Egyptian slavery, right? Verse 10 there, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And, and the result of that, right, the result of, of, of rejecting God as king, the result of forgetting God as well, is a total assimilation into a pagan society. Right? The, the people of Israel The people of God, they did evil in God's sight, and they worshiped and they served false gods. So the Lord judged them. The Lord judged them, right? And His judgments would drive them to repentance at times, and they would call out to the Lord, and God would use those judges to rescue Israel from their oppressors, to get them out of the situation that they themselves put themselves in. And then they would fall right back into idolatry, right? And, and, and even the judges who would deliver Israel from their oppressors, which, again, were the people that they should have taken out, right, that the Lord told them to take out in the first place. But even the judges grew more worldly as the book goes on, right? They end up with Samson by the end of the book, right? And, and Samson... He violated clear teachings of of God's law, right? Samson, as judge, shows us just how bad things got in Israel. So things are not well during this time. Things are not well because of Israel's idolatry in the promised land and because of Israel's infidelity to, to the triune God. And this resulted in all sorts of wickedness. Again, this is the context of the story. And we see Elimelech, right, the husband, the man of the house here, whose name means God is king, right? That's what his name means. We see this man in a time where there's no king take his family and leave Bethlehem. And if you know what that word Bethlehem means, it means place of bread. They leave that. They leave that because of a famine, a famine caused by the ongoing wars in the promised land. We see that in Judges chapter 6, verses 4 to six. So Elimelech takes his family, and he leaves God's promised land, and he enters an unpromised land, if you will. He enters into an unpromised land, and our text says that he goes to the land of the Moabites. And if you know anything about Moab, 
right? The, Mo, the Moabites are, are Lot's, uh, they descend from Lot and from his incestuous relationship encounter with his daughter that we see in Genesis chapter 19. One commentator described Moab this way. He says, for Israel, Moab was known for several things, none of them good. Right? The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Their king, Balak, had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Their women had been a stumbling block to the Israelites in the wilderness, seducing them to the worship of their false gods. Numbers chapter 25. And they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon, who was the king at the time, Judges 3. And he doesn't even make mention of child sacrifice here. And then he poses the question, the commentator says, does this sound like a place to go and raise a godly family? All right. All right, in our day in society, we're always talking when we're moving, right? The housing market is really hot right now, and so your options are limited. But typically, you're, you're asking yourself the question, man, where is a, what, what community can my family thrive in? Right, Moab would not be the community. That, that's not the community that you're looking at to, to move in, to, to settle your family in. And so the, the question of the commentator, it's a, it's a legitimate question. And, and it may be easy to find fault with Elimelech for the decision to leave the promised land and go to Moab, but hold in your mind, again, both the tumultuous climate of Israel, hold, hold that in your mind, hold in your mind the fear of, of starvation, and then hold in your mind the pragmatic tendencies that we all tend to have. All right, many of us would have probably made the same decision, really. So Elimelech, he takes his family, and our text says that he went to sojourn, which indicates perhaps the intention to only stay there temporarily until the, 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 the coast was clear, to find a place that they could survive, if you will, and just wait things out. All right, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong here with wanting to keep your family alive, right? There's nothing wrong there. But again, we're not talking about the difference between should I live in Yorktown? Should I live in Newport News or Gloucester? Should I live in, in Williams? Or we're not talking about that sort of decision, right? This is a leaving of the covenant promise of God. That's what's happening here, a promise to save a promise to preserve. It's leaving the provisions of God, and it's taking matters into your own hands. Good intentions aside, there are weighty eternal consequences to this. And because of how blessings and curses worked in the old covenant, we get a picture of earthly consequences. And, 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 And I don't even know really what the spiritual consequences were for this family. But we see that the blessings and curses uh, thing happen here in this story, just in these five verses. Elimelech, he dies in Moab. He dies in Moab. He dies outside of God's promised land, right? He dies decidedly away from God's covenant faithfulness. Then his two sons marry Moabite women, which is forbidden in Scripture, and which goes to show you, by the way, just how far adrift the family was, right? Marriage equals a total assimilation into that pagan society, but it doesn't end there, right? Ten years later, 
A long time for someone to sojourn or somewhere in the midst of that 10 years, both of the sons, Mahalan and Kilian, they die. They die, right? Old covenant blessings and curses. So a father and a husband, he leaves God's covenant promise and he goes away from God's covenant promise to save his family from starvation and his entire family ends up dying except his wife. This family leaves Bethlehem, leaves the place of bread in order to provide for themselves, right? To, again, take matters into their own hands. And by the end of verse 5, Naomi is a childless widow. She's a childless widow. No husband, no sons, all alone. And Naomi, whose name means pleasant or delightful, or lovely, as we'll see next week, she gives herself the name Mara, which means bitterness. And this is a true story. There's a lot here. There's a lot here just in these five verses. And, and this morning, we need, there are things that we need to see in this text and apply in this text. And so what I'm going to do is I actually gave you these takeaways in your, your bulletin, and I'm going to work through the takeaways, some things that we need to see spiritually from this historical account. And the first is this, who or what you worship has consequences. Who or what you worship has consequences. That is what is behind the historical context of this book, right? God commanded Israel to conquer everyone in the promised land, everyone in the land of Canaan, because to not do so, to not obey God in that matter would be to the detriment of of Israel's worship. It would be to the detriment of their fidelity, their devotion to Yahweh, to the triune God, which is bad for them. Because Israel had a worship disorder, they exchanged beauty for brutality. They exchanged beauty for brutality. Instead of a land flowing with milk and honey, there is this relative truth sort of living. There is famine There's war, there's barrenness, there's wrath, there's morally questionable judges in the land. There's the enslavement of pagan kings, all because they did not clear the land. All because they didn't worship the triune God. And when they did give lip service there to the triune God, they didn't worship him in the way in which he prescribed for them to worship. They believed their ways to be better. They believed their ways to be more logical. They believed their ways to be more expedient. They believed their ways perhaps even to be more compassionate than the ways of God. But again, we need to remember that God created this world. right? God created this world, and this world only functions the way it's supposed to when He alone is the object of our worship and when He directs the contours of our actual worship and devotion. The reason why we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is that when we give him glory, it works out for our good. It works out for our good because that is the way this world was designed. 
right? That no one else besides our God is worthy of our worship. No one else besides our God is worthy of our devotion. Not just our our soul worship, but our very body, our bringing our members into subjection to his lordship, to his word. Only God alone, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is worthy of that sort of devotion, There's no one beside our God that's more glorious. And it, again, is to our eternal good, to our eternal good, that we worship and are devoted to the Lord. To do so is to join with all the rest of His creation. The very rocks that cry out to Him. And to refuse to do so will be to the detriment of, of our body and our soul, eternally, eternally so. So who and what we worship, who or what we worship, it has significant consequences, eternal consequences. Secondly, we need to see here, the spiritual state of our family is more important than being safe. The spiritual state of our family is more important than being safe. This is another way of saying that affliction is to be preferred even over the smallest sin. Affliction is to be preferred even over the smallest sin, over disobedience. Elimelech, he sought to avoid affliction, right? Going hungry, potential starvation, and in doing so, he sinned against God by rejecting God's covenant promise, by not trusting in God, not trusting in God's character, and we see where that led he and his family, don't we? Right To the very affliction that they sought to avoid. It's better to suffer affliction under the mighty hand of God, right, waiting on His deliverance, trusting in Him for His deliverance, than to rebel against Him and eliminate what Paul calls light momentary afflictions, right, when compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Right, we may suffer, and we may suffer immensely on this earth. Some of you suffer immensely, presently, but suffering and waiting on God's deliverance, a deliverance that may come in death, by the way, but suffering and waiting on God's deliverance is much better than rebelling against God and suffering for all eternity in hell because of our sin. Now let's think about it another way. Safetyism, right? It's, a, it's a, become so, sort of a cult in our society, right? If folks can't guarantee our safety which no one has ever been able to do, by the way, in the history of the world, then we become paralyzed by fear. If the last two years have demonstrated anything, it's that people will do anything to feel safe. Anything. Absolutely anything. And and while there's nothing wrong with trying to be careful and trying to be safe, trying to be safe, but when safety becomes the chief care and concern in your life, you'll seek to hold on to it no matter what it cost you. Right? When Elimelech moved his family to Moab, that decision made, may have made sense from a, a, a place of safety, right? A, the, a, a temporal safety perspective, if you will, it made, made logical sense, right? There are wars, there are famines in the promised land. Get out of there. But it devastated, utterly devastated the spiritual life of this man's family. They integrated with the Moabites, which implies a significant compromise 
as it relates to them being God's people and a part of God's covenant. Right? The spiritual health of our families must be the dr- primary driving force behind the decisions that we make on a daily basis. Right? Because we're eternal beings, the health of our soul is more important even than our physical safety. Again, I'm not advocating for being reckless in life. I'm advocating to put first things first. Right? We, we wouldn't be sitting here as Deer Park Fellowship if the disciples in the early church and the medieval church and the reformers allowed their safety to take precedence over eternal matters. If they said, you know what? People are being killed for this thing. And I, I mean, think about the disciples, right? When Jesus gives this larger than life task, evangelize the entire world and teach them obedience. And they're looking around and there's like, well, there's 12 of us here right now. Um, which way? Where, where do we start with this? Oh, and by the way, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And you know that they killed me. And before we even finish the New Testament, we see the spread of the early church. We see how they were martyred for their faithfulness to the Lord, right? Faithfulness over safety there. Jesus says in Matthew 10, right, just to give us perspective, 28 to 33, don't fear, fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, right? Fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he goes on, right? And we, we, we quote this when we're comforting people that are wrestling with anxiety. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. It is good for us to be faithful to Christ. It is good for us to be near Christ. It is good for us to be low before the Lord, to stay low before the Lord. It's good for our families to be near Jesus Christ and low before Christ. It's good for us to be in Jesus no matter what it costs us. We have to stay close to Christ. So the spiritual state of our family is more important than being safe. We see that in the book of Ruth. Three, pay attention to the discipline of the Lord. Pay attention to the discipline of the Lord. Israel was being judged because of their disobedience to the Lord, and the Lord does that to those that he loves. He does that to those that he loves. We see that Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. We see Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Discipline is different than punishment. It's different than punishment. Discipline is corrective. It's corrective. The aim is restoration. The, the aim is to get somebody off of the path of death and put them on the path of life. Right? When it feels like you're under the judgment of God, when it feels like that, right? it could be because the Lord is trying to drive you toward repentance. It could be because the Lord is trying to drive you into deeper fellowship with himself, which is good for you, right? It's good for your soul. Don't ignore discipline. Don't grow callous toward discipline. Be introspective. Be humble. Be quick to confess. Be quick to rest in Jesus Christ. The Lord is shaping you for eternity, and that means that discipline will in fact happen. It will happen. And when it does, pay attention to it. 
Pay attention to it. Right? Israel was being judged by being taken captive by wicked, wicked rulers. They were being judged through famine. They were being judged through wars and death. And while we may not experience things as drastic as this and thank God for that, we do experience difficult times. Right? Sometimes it's at no fault of our own, but sometimes the Lord is disciplining us to take us off of a treacherous and deadly path in order to put us back on the road to what John Bunyan calls the celestial city. So pay attention to the discipline of the Lord. And then last, the choice is Moab or Bethlehem. That's the choice. It's Moab or Bethlehem. It's a choice of moving away from God's covenant promises or, which in his covenant promises, by the way, which are realized in Jesus Christ. It's the difference between moving away from that or living in it. That's the options there. There's no other option. There's no other option. This is God's world, right? No other option. It's not a coincidence that Bethlehem means place of bread and that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. John 6, 25 to 59. Elimelech, he could have refrained from the idolatry of Israel. And again, I'm not trying to be harsh on Elimelech. But he could have refrained from the idolatry of Israel while waiting for the Lord's deliverance from judgment in Israel. Instead, he decided, he decided against waiting for the salvation of the Lord, and it was a fatal mistake. In contrast, consider Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet, who experienced the severe judgments of God at no fault of his own. He lived amongst idolaters right, in Jerusalem, and God judged them for their idolatry by allowing them to be taken captive by their enemy. Jeremiah, he records horrific things both in Jeremiah and in Lamentations. But consider this passage, chapter 3 of Lamentations, and then I'll close us down. The prophet Jeremiah, he says, He's filled me, he's talking about the Lord, He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drink wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel and he's covered me with ashes. You've moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity, and I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. And then there's this turning here, verse 21. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Though the Lord's mercy, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. And this is where we get the hymn Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And the difference between Jeremiah and Elimelech, right? Jeremiah, he reminded himself in the midst of extreme suffering, in the midst of famine, included in that suffering of the faithfulness of God. Again, I don't want to be quick to fault Elimelech. We shouldn't be quick to fault him because spiritually speaking, we run to Moab all the time, right? And we go there for quick hits of comfort. We go there for counterfeit peace. We go there for control. 
We go there for lust. We flee there because our idols take us there. And, and sometimes even those idols, like wanting to keep your family alive, are gifts from God that we've perverted and fashioned into golden calves. Right? We settle for the fleeting pleasures and comforts of Moab when God is calling us to stay and wait for deliverance and to eat at Bethlehem. So the question that we're all faced with is, will you remain at Bethlehem? Will you remain at Bethlehem? Will you feast on the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ? Will you see along with Jeremiah that it's good to wait on the Lord, that it's good to hope in the Lord, that salvation will come on God's timing? Will you remember God's covenant faithfulness to you in Jesus? Will you trust God's covenant faithfulness to you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to have time in your word again. And Lord, we pray that, God, that we would feast on Christ. God, that we would, God, that you would keep us spiritually from Moab, God, and that we would remain in Bethlehem, Lord. And help us to be content with your hand, your providential hand in our lives, God, knowing that you are good and that it's good for us to be near you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.